passage from God's Word on this beautiful day. Uh, I'm like uh, everybody else that was on the uh, D-Now weekend, a little blurry-eyed, a few cobwebs still. Uh, I'm still standing, which is a miracle in and of itself. These young people have a lot of energy, a lot of activity. Um, it's a blessing to be among them. Help keep me young, but also love to see in their faces the desire they have to seek after the Lord and to worship Him. It is an inspiration. I'm, I was as blessed as I could possibly be. And again, my apologies to my brother for keeping him awake. <laughs> Private room next time, brother. Private room. Anyway, we are uh, continuing in our study of the Gospel of John that you may believe. We're going to be in the first half of chapter 14 this morning, specifically verses 1 through 14. And I pray you will find the Lord's teaching here to be as exciting as I found it to be in preparing for this message. I must first confess that it was a real challenge to prepare for this message. The struggle was not to find a message in these verses. In fact, it was just the opposite. There is so much here. As I studied, it quickly became apparent that the struggle would be to bring a coherent, focused message from all that John has written in these 14 verses in the time available for us. Now, if you're good for three hours, I'm good, because that's about how, the minimum amount of time, really, that it would take to do justice to these words. But I'm going to try to do it in the time available, and uh, only with the Holy Spirit's uh, um, leading can I possibly have a hope of doing that now pastors and teachers have developed entire sermons on these just these 14 verses just a few of these 14 verses my challenge had to bring to you just some of the profound teaching in these verses in the time available my hope is to be somewhat successful any failures are mine and mine alone for failing to listen to the guidance of the holy spirit so let me be attentive to his leading this morning i'd also like to take a brief moment to offer a word of gratitude to adam langton you have no idea who Adam Langton is. Neither did I. Adam Langton, the former Archbishop of Canterbury just a few days ago at 1277, came up with the idea of dividing the books of the Bible into books, chapters, verses. So the format of your Bible today has to do with the innovations of Adam Langton in 1277. The first Bible, English Bible, uh, to use that was the Wycliffe Bible in 1382. So for the last 746 years, give or take, we have used that convention to study our Bibles. And it's, and it's very helpful, very helpful. If I can tell you to turn to John 3.16, boom, you know where to go. There's a problem with it, though, with this convention, with this remarkable, and, 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 uh, remarkable innovation. And it's because... It often impinges on the way that scripture should be read. Dividing scripture into chapters and verses is, by necessity, somewhat arbitrary. And it can cloud and obscure the message that the original writers wanted to convey. It's always important to put the verses we study into proper context. First, you should start by prayerfully asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate the scripture you are studying. And we should be mindful of the scriptures that come before and the scriptures that come after 
One of the worst things you can do is take an isolated verse of scripture out of context. We see it in Jeremiah all the time. It's one of them that just gets on Brother Jordan and my nerves in a big way, how that verse is misapplied. We should beware of the overarching themes of the spirit-inspired author who is con- that he was conveying to his audience. We should be very aware of the social, cultural context in which the, ver- the verses were first written, particularly in the language in which they were written. Now, translators do a remarkably good job to translate from the original Greek and Hebrew into modern English. But they can only come so close. The New Testament, for instance, in the Greek, Greek is a far more uh, expression-filled, precise language than English. Now, when I was in high school trying to get into college, I had to take foreign language. I took German, three years of German. Got a lot of strange looks from people. Why? And why did I take German? Because it wasn't French. That was a joke. Meant for my daughter. Meant for my grandma. Where is Jared, by the way? Yeah, he took French, too. Didn't understand it, but anyway. I took German. Why? Because it was the language of science, second language of science, and the second language of, or the, one of the sec- primary languages in philosophy and theology. It was going to help me in college, or so I thought. One of the things I did not want to do is study biblical languages. Man, they are too hard. Got to get an amen. Hebrew, man, I'm frightened to death of Hebrew. I don't think I can wrap my tongue around it. Greek, on the other hand, holy, God's got a great sense of humor. I am spending so much time in Greek, it is nuts. Why? It's just the Greek is so important to understanding Scripture, particularly the New Testament. If we could all read and speak Greek, we would be blessed. Because as good as English translators are and the English translations are, they can only get so close. And because of that, you got to be a little careful with the, some of the verses that you take. Okay. So the thing we do want to be careful to do is always let the Holy Spirit illuminate the Scripture. Because if he does, you will find it fresh, alive, and meaningful. And you will actually learn something new, as I did as I prepared this study. So if you would, and if you're able, and I think most of us are anyway, uh, please rise and we will read the Lord's word together. Beginning in verse 1, John brings us the words of our Lord. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. For truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask, for, ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for empowering the Apostle John to remember and record these words that you spoke, Lord Jesus. Open our hearts and minds today, Lord, that we may come to understand what you would have us to learn today. Help us, Lord, to focus, free us from every distraction that may intrude upon us this morning. Amen. Please be seated. Strap in. Buckle up. Tray tables up. Seat backs up. Going to go on a really incredible flight. I said earlier this morning the context is important. Langton's formatting convention is very unfortunate here as it lamentably separates chapter 14 from chapter 13. In the original manuscripts, chapter 13 flows into chapter 14, and if our Bibles reflected this, we'd have a better understanding of what Jesus is teaching the apostles and why. John 14 is a continuation of what is commonly referred to as the upper room discourse by Jesus. This is the longest discourse of Jesus in the entire New Testament. It is actually longer than the Sermon on the Mount. It's longer than his conversation with Nicodemus. This sermon, uh, sermon the upper room discourse starts in verse 31 of uh, chapter 13 and continues on throughout for the next four chapters, all the way into chapter 17 of John. In chapter 13, during the last Passover supper, Pastor Micah pointed out last week that he provided a touching, stunning example of humility, of servanthood, one that we should emulate in our own lives, being servants to others when he washed the disciples' feet. He told them that his time had come for him to leave and that he was going to die. He told them that among them would, uh, there was one that was going to betray him to his enemies. And that even Peter, the ever impetuous and proud Peter, would soon deny him before the sun come up the next morning. These men are greatly distressed by his words. They are confused. They are perplexed. Questions abound. Jesus begins to provide answers to many of their spoken and unspoken questions. He's introducing them to a new way of existence, in a truth that is a whole new way of life, one that is only available to them by abiding in him. So let us consider this morning the way, the truth, and the life which Jesus teaches here. First, let's look at the way. Jesus is teaching them a new way of being. We see in the first verses of chapter 14, Jesus trying to comfort his apostles. 
These words of comfort Jesus gives to his closest friends in the other room are just as applicable to us today. So let's look at the words with fresh eyes and what words they are. He says, Don't, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. First point, what an audacious statement. Once again, Jesus boldly declares his close association with God. But here, he's going far more than just saying, I'm a prophet. He is making a connection, a personal connection to the Father. He identifies with the Father himself. Jesus clearly says that if you believe in God, you believe what I say. The Greek formulation for the verb believe can be taken two ways, either in the indicative form or in the imperative form. In the scholars, theologians, they will argue over, you've heard the phrase, they'll argue over how many angels can dance on the pen of a needle. Well, that's true. They argue about what these very words believe mean. Is it the imperative form? Is it an indicative form? Hey, guys, look closely at it. It's both. Even a, you know, old boy from uh, North Florida can understand this. The first believe statement is indicative. You believe in God. These are Jewish men that have been walking with Jesus for three years. They believe in God. No question about that. But the second use of the the second form of the Greek verb is believe also in me. Jesus is saying, you believe God, believe me too. Understanding the second statement as an imperative, you got to recognize and appreciate that Jesus is giving the apostle something I'm very familiar with, a command. He is telling them lovingly but firmly, trust in me. Jesus is telling the final faithful 11 apostles to calm down, to not be perplexed and anxious over what is coming. He's telling them to trust in him. He's telling them to breathe. He's saying, you believe in God, keep on believing in me. You believed in him before I told you I was going away. Believe in me now that the time has come. Don't despair. Don't be anxious. Trust in me, Jesus says. His general admonition should be heard by us as well. And this bewildering, eh, see, I, can't, I still can't say it. I tripped on it this morning too. Got to find that water. In this crazy, sinful world, our hearts become troubled. Jesus is telling us to calm down and trust in him. Were the apostles sinning here against God by being upset and anxious? No. Do you lack faith if you are disquieted, perplexed, or upset? No. Is it a sin for a believer in Christ to have a troubled heart? No. For John tells us even Jesus had at times a troubled heart. In the account of Lazarus' resurrection, we're told Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. In John 12, just days before this Passover meal, Jesus is sought out by some Gentile God-fearers who had gone up to Jerusalem to worship. And in his conversation with them, he predicts his coming death. And he says in verse 27, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, 
No, it was for this very reason I came. And in the Passover meal itself, in verse 13, 21, Jesus, uh, John records Jesus saying, Jesus was troubled in spirit. We know that Jesus did not sin, but we also know that at times he was troubled. Clearly, to have a troubled heart is not to commit a sin. Yet, if the trouble in our heart causes us to worry incessantly, if the disquiet becomes our singular focus in our existence, if that's all we're thinking about, if, it's, if this unrest is central to our lives, if we dwell on it with such a, such a way that the anxiety consumes us, therein lies danger. Or we are making an idol of our worries. If we don't do as Jesus commands, turn the source of the worry over to him, we are dangerously close to sinning. We have an affirmative duty to comply with his command. How do we comply? We are to have faith in him. We are to trust in him. For he is God. We are no different from these 11 disturbed, anxious, worried men. Like them, some of us have been disciples of Jesus for a while now. And you would think we would know to have learned to trust him more. Yet in the midst of the uncertainties, burdens, challenges, aggravations, troubles, illnesses, infirmities, the craziness of this world, we panic. We become anxious. Jesus is gently, lovingly, yet firmly and authoritatively telling us to calm down to focus on him, to make him central to our lives. If Jesus is giving a command, he expects us to comply. We have a responsibility to do so. How do we comply? We trust in him. Now, in verse 2, Jesus gives one of the reasons for the apostles to trust in him. His departure has a purpose. In verse 2, he says, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, but I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Again, when you dig into what scholars have to say about Jesus' word in these three verses, you will find they have a bewildering diversity of views what these verses mean. Is it, it is really, really, really easy to get bogged down into these issues. And while fascinating and informative, we simply don't have time to go into them. But it's important to realize that what Jesus is saying in this verse is more than you may think at first blush. If you take a literal reading of the verse to alone, out of context, with the, uh, the entirety of the upper room discourse, you will quite naturally take the verse to mean that Jesus has gone away to engage in a home improvement project to prepare a place in heaven where we will be someday as believers with Jesus for all eternity. Many a sermon has been preached with this idea firmly in view. Many a hymn has been written about the mansions that await us in heaven. And if you're like me, this might have long been your understanding. Now, it's not wrong. It's just not complete. It's not entirely clear that that was the message Jesus was conveying in these verses. Consider this. 
Even if it means simply that Jesus is going to prepare a place for us in heaven, the verse poses other problems. For instance, the question becomes, when will Jesus take us to be with him to these mansions or rooms that he has prepared for us? Is it when we die? Is that the end of the age and the second coming? Can it mean both things? Or is Jesus talking about something else entirely? What seems to be a simple statement is not. There's much more here. As is always the case, Jesus' teaching is deep and profound. You have to prayerfully meditate upon it. Biblical scholar and commentator W. Hall Harris III, I wonder what number one and number two did, but number three would seem to be a pretty good theologian, notes that the noun mone, which translated to mansions or rooms, is relegated to a cognate verb. I know my daughter is geeking out because this is her area of expertise, which is elsewhere frequently used in John's gospel to refer to a permanence of relationship between Jesus and the Father and Jesus and the believer. He's not talking about palatial mansions. He's not talking about craftsman bungalows. He's not talking about apartment buildings that he's adding rooms on, physical structures. He's talking about relationship. The idea here is not a place of temporary habitation, but a permanent abiding, a permanent relationship. Now, Chuck Swindle, in a recent sermon, suggests Jesus is saying he is about expanding the Father's house by adding rooms, just like the ancient practice of adding rooms to accommodate an expanding family. I know you've heard that one before. It's, it's, it's correct, but it's the, the rooms are not the focus. It's the house that's the focus. The house is God's kingdom. Jesus is giving an intimation here that he's going to be adding to God's kingdom. The rooms, by implication, are coming believers. We are the rooms. God comes to abide in us, in the church, in this age. Now, that was a stunning revelation to me. So I dug deep into it and said, wow, that's crazy, uh, and found that uh, Robert Gundry in the 1960s, did a remarkable paper on the subject, and it just, just blew me away. I'll give it to Brother Jordan, because I'm sure he can use it as he works on his doctorate. It's, great, it's a great reference. What is the purpose of Jesus' departure? It is to, in order to build the church. Now think about it. When Jesus was on earth, for that three years of his ministry, Walking through Palestine, in Galilee, Capernaum, Samaria, Judea. Estimates are probably somewhere in the vicinity of 1,500, 2,000. He had 2,000 followers. He had the 12 disciples. Then there was another group probably knowing of about 150 to 300 that were in and out following him at different times. One of the cool things about the show that we're going to be looking at, The Chosen, you see some of that, people coming in and out. They're disciples. They're not apostles. They're disciples. All total in Jesus' ministry, 
1,500, 2,000. On one day at Pentecost, more people were saved and added to the church by Peter's teaching. In one day, 3,000 people. That's what Jesus is talking about. He has to go away so that he can send another helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, who resides in each one of us who are believers. That's what Jesus is beginning to talk about in these verses, the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says, my children, I will, in John 13, 33, he says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. Where he was going was back to the Father, and they could not follow him there yet. But later he would return for them, and they would join him. The way he was going was via the cross. He had told them earlier, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw people unto, unto myself. As Jesus would explain very shortly, although the way for him back to the Father was by way of the cross for his disciples, then and for all time, the way where he is going to the Father is Jesus himself. How should we understand these verses as applying to us? Jesus is telling the apostles that though he is about to leave them, don't despair. He is not abandoning them. Not only will he return to them, but he will also come for them. Their very relationship with him was about to change. That's the same for us. The moment you were saved, your relationship with God changed fundamentally. Jesus is not physically with us today, but he is with us still. He's in this room right now. Why? Because he is in the hearts of every believer that is in this room. Think about that. There is no closer relationship than, that can be had. He abides in us, and we are in him. That relationship with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and Father God means everything. If you don't ponder on it daily, meditate upon it daily, daily, you will no longer, you're not allowing the Holy Spirit to transform your life. You have to do it. And when you do it, you will be amazed at how you are changed. Secondly, Jesus is teaching that he is the truth. It's a new way of understanding. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know how to get there? Now, clearly, Thomas is perplexed by what Jesus is telling them. Poor Thomas. His, I have his namesake. I'm often clueless. But Thomas is characteristically comments further when others don't. Oh, to have Thomas's courage. We should be glad he did, because in this one verse, the entire gospel message is expressed. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is it. If you only memorize one memory verse in your entire life, that is it. And live upon it. Live with it, making a difference in your life. This is the sixth of the seven I am statements of Jesus recorded by John. They are clear declarations of his deity. There is no doubt about who Jesus is. We often overlook the profundity of this statement, though. He has used it elsewhere. 
We're so familiar with it, we just don't let it resonate in our heart. He is absolutely clear. He tells the apostles that if they have known him, they also know the Father. He's taken with his extraordinary I am the way declaration. It should be unmistakably apparent to the apostles that Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus says it straight out. To know Jesus is to know God. To see Jesus is to see God face to face. And don't miss the present tense here. To know Jesus is to have a present active knowledge of the Father. To let the Holy Spirit work in your life is to know Jesus and to know the Father. But of course, as John re repeatedly reminds us, the apostles are slow on the uptake. They are slow to understand. Philip rolls in. It's clear from his request that he and probably the other disciples too have again misunderstood Jesus. Brother Curtis was relating to me a story about an individual that said, if I can only see Jesus, you have. When you came to a saving, a saving faith in him and the Holy Spirit entered into your life, you have seen Jesus. He is in you. He wants to lead you into a deeper understanding and a deeper relationship in your life. Let him. Poor Philip. It's clear from Philip's request he still doesn't understand. Look at uh, Jesus' response to him. Philip, don't you know me? Where have you been the last three years? That's another thing I take away from this. How patient our Lord and Savior. My goodness, if it was me and this was the classroom, I'd probably be in trouble because I've already slapped Philip upside the head saying, wake up, where have you been? How gracious he is and how loving he is to Thomas and Philip. This tells us so much about his relationship to the apostles and his relationship to us. He is gracious, loving, clearly long-suffering, and patient. He doesn't rebuke Thomas or Philip in their questioning. He will not rebuke you for your questioning either. He wants you to seek him out for questions. He wants you to seek him out in prayer. That's what the Psalms are, is seeking an understanding of what God's doing in his life. Seeking understanding. Jesus is eager for us to understand, to have a deeper knowledge of who he is and who the Father is, and to act upon it. He desires us to enter into a deeper relationship, a closer walk with him, with the way. In the original Greek, the way means a road or a path. Hidden in it is an idea of a journey going from one point to another of one's travels. Pastor Jordan this weekend told the youth, You're, it doesn't end with your baptism. It's only a beginning. You should be meditating upon the Lord every day, walking with him every day. To travel with the way is to be in truth. Man has been on a search for truth since he was divorced from it, from him, at the fall. Truth is not an esoteric concept or an ethic, even though we're going to be studying it in, Christ, in Christian ethics. Truth is a person. While the mind searches for clarity and logical propositions, it is man's heart most needs the security of the relationship with his creator, with Jesus Christ. He is the end of the search for truth. 
Jesus is truth. And the way, Jesus, is life itself. Chuck Swindle sums it up pretty well. Christianity is not a system of philosophy. It is not a system of rules and rituals, a code of laws and ethics. It is the impartation of life. It is the one who originates life, giving it to one who has no life in himself. So that new life has begun that never dies. Before the disciples of Christ called themselves Christians, they referred to themselves as people of the way. And the gospel itself was referred to as the way. The way is truth and life. To enter unto the way is to truly live. is freedom. It is working out of our salvation, our sanctification. But it is not for our sole benefit. It's not all about us. It is for his larger purpose, for Jesus and his Father's glory. Which brings us to the third point. The life is a call to works. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, there is a lot of bad theology that springs from these verses. And I could spend hours, perhaps days, going over these verses and pointing out some of the errors that have befallen the church because of these misunderstandings. But I can't do it, so we'll have to be brief with it. What are, the greater, what are these greater things? Now, you've got to look at that and go, how is that possible? Now, I have no expectations that I'm ever going to see a man walk on water, nor will I ever see a man calm the tempest with a single word. And apart from that day, if I'm still here, when Jesus returns and calls people up from the grave, I won't see somebody rise from the dead. So how is it possible that the apostles would do greater miracles than Jesus himself did. That's not what he means. What he means is you will do the things that I do in greater scope. I mentioned that earlier. On Pentecost, more people were saved in one day than an entire, in, uh, the, the entire length of Jesus' earthly ministry on earth. That is what he's talking about. And he's talking, who's going to do it? We are. Individual disciples of Christ with the Holy Spirit active in us are to do the works that Jesus did. We are to continue in his ministry. Believe it or not, folks, you're ministers too. And we're supposed to be out there carrying the gospel message. I am. I praise God for the faithfulness of the three that are on the mission field in India this morning. That is just truly amazing. I praise God for you when you leave from here today. You're on the mission field too, and that you'll be recognizing, uh, representing Jesus as you go about your life. Now, there are another couple of verses here that are very difficult and dangerous. That people, we pray in Jesus' name that these prayers will be answered. I had to cut part of this out on the fly. It's really important, though. There is a bad theology out there, the name it and claim it theology. You know, the wealth. Happiness theology is an anathema. It is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you pray for things, what Jesus is saying here, if you do my will and you pray in my will, in other words, in my authority, you do the things I command you to do, 
these prayers will be answered. If you're praying for things that are not in accordance with and they're not answered immediately, take a hint, check, as we say in the Air Force, check six. Maybe you are out of sync with God's will in your life and the things that you're praying for are things that you shouldn't be praying for. God's, your prayers will be answered if they are in God's will. They may not be in the time that you want to see them or in the way that you expect to see them, but his will will inevitably be done. The uh, preeminent uh, Johannian scholar of the 20th century, a guy by the name of R.E. Brown, writes, John's theology has introduced into prayer in Jesus' name an emphasis that goes beyond the original formula. They use it as a formula. A Christian prays in Jesus' name in the sense that he is in union with Christ. Because a Christian is in union with Jesus and Jesus is in union with the Father, there can be no doubt that the Christian's request will be granted but only if you're in union with God. We should realize as disciples of Christ, we are not called to idleness, but to work. We are all living stones in the temple of the Almighty. We all have a part of the body of Christ. God has assigned the task and uniquely gives all believers to work together to fulfill his plan for glory. The grace, mercy, and love that Jesus exhibited are to be manifest in every disciple. The works of Jesus include deeds of humility, service, kindness, and charity, as well as miraculous signs. It includes work done within the congregation and outside of it and in ever-expanding circles of community. We should live our lives as a continuation of Jesus' life, which should be about the Father's business, just as Jesus was. We are called to ministry. Both our deeds and our prayers glorify the Father because it is Jesus who is at work through the Holy Spirit in us. Are you in constant prayer for yourself and those around you? Are you submitting to the transformative work of the Holy Spirit who resides in you? Or are you resisting? Are the fruits of his Spirit manifest in you and through you? Are you any different today than when you first came to know him? Reflect upon the road you are on. Is it the path of eternal life? Is it the narrow way that leads to eternal relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ? Can you confidently say that you know the way, the truth, and you are in the life? I pray that you do. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, holy and glorious is your name. We at this moment acknowledge that your son Jesus is our Lord and Savior. We thank you for his wonderful eternal presence. We thank you for the hope he brings us in our lives in the midst of such a troubled and disturbing world. In a life so uncertain, he brings truth as he is truth itself. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you for finding us when we were lost, for bringing us hope, purpose, and meaning in our lives. May you find all your people obedient, fruitful, and usable for your kingdom work. To you be the glory. Your will be done. Come, Lord Jesus, come. It is in your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.